If you've uh, looked at the title of my sermon, The End Game, you're probably thinking I'm going to talk about the NCAA championship game on Monday night. But, uh, and I think that might have been what I was thinking about when I chose this title. That we're in that season approaching Holy Week and Easter. And our text today comes from the Gospel of John, the 11th chapter, and it's about the death and the resurrection of Lazarus. So today, instead of the NCAA championship, we'll be talking about death. I invite you to listen for God's word as it comes to us from the Gospel of John. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. Her brother, Lazarus, was ill. So the sisters sent a message to Jesus, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. Rather, it is for God's glory, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Accordingly, though Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, after having heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And when Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus was already, had already been in the tomb for four days. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Then Jesus, again greatly disturbed, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, already there's a stench because he's been dead for four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus looked upwards and said, Father, I thank you for having heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I have said this for the sake of the crowd standing here so that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said this, he cried, cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and his feet bound with strips of cloth, his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to, to them, unbind him and let him go. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you join me in prayer? Great God of the universe, who in Jesus Christ brought light and life into the world we know. Bring light and life now through the words that I speak, that it may be the word of God. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You know, being a pastor's kid has certain drawbacks. Reverend P. 
Peter Marty tells the story of conscripting his son Jacob, who was then in the seventh grade, into a service for a children's message one Sunday morning. Jacob replied, sure, Dad, before he knew what he was getting himself into. His father had procured a rather large cardboard box used to transport refrigerators, and he'd cut it and he draped it with this black cloth stretched over it so it would look like a coffin. This was to function as the grave in which Jacob would lie like a dead man right there in front in the chancel. But the tough part was that this unsuspecting 12-year-old had to lie there motionless for a full 25 minutes even before the service began. So climbing into the box, he knew that at any other time, everybody would know that he was there. So he had to be there long before anyone arrived for worship. So early one Sunday morning, his father wrapped Jacob in toilet paper from head to toe, four rolls wrapped around him. They walked over and uh, completely covered him except for just a little space around his mouth and nose. And they lowered Jacob into the burial vault and placed the cloth over the top. And Dad whispered, thanks and goodbye. And during the next 40 minutes, his father kept an eye on the box, but it never moved once not even slightly. And finally the time came for the children's message. He called all the children forward. He told them the story of Lazarus dying and rising again at the command of Jesus, whereupon the father turned to the box, Lazarus, come out! And the box began to move. Something was stirring inside, and the 75 kids that were there for the children's message all looked like they were about to wet their pants And the black cloth fell to the side, and Lazarus, I mean Jacob, stood there looking like the Michelin man in front of the congregation. And as everybody was trying to make their own sense of this Sunday morning resuscitation, Dad began to peel off the tissue from around Jacob's face. But what he hadn't accounted for was that in that unventilated box, it was going to get really hot. And the poor kid was drenched with sweat, which meant that the tissue was kind of stuck to him like saturated gauze. The pastor then asked the children to help him get peel off the grave clothes from Jacob and unbind him. You know, if you've ever had to clean up a house after it's been teepeed, and the dew or it's rained, rain has fallen, and it is just a mess to try and clean up. Well, rising from the dead apparently isn't easy even when it's just being reenacted. And it takes a community to unbind those who smell like death. We're not afforded the power to unbind ourselves from some things. We can probably all remember our first or earliest experience of death. Perhaps it was a grandparent or a family member or a friend's family member or friend, someone we loved very much. Years ago, I attended a service, a funeral service, for a 17-year-old girl 
who had been out with friends on a Saturday night. The car she was driving was T-boned by a drunk driver racing through the intersection. Her high school friends and classmates were just stunned that a life that was filled with so much promise could just be taken in the blink of an eye. How can life be so fragile? Is there any meaning at all in the face of those kinds of tragedies? And I remember the collective look of grief and despair on their faces. Grief is one of the most painful of human emotions. We often don't have the power to unbind ourselves of the grief we bear. That's why we need one another. Years ago, the Swiss psychologist Elizabeth Kubler-Ross wrote a book entitled On Death and Dying. Then she wrote a sequel entitled On Grief and Grieving. And there have been many supporters, and there are also detractors through the years, but we all grieve a little differently. But she identified five stages that many people go through when facing grief and when facing death. And they've come to be somewhat generally accepted. It begins with the first stage known as denial. And as they say, the denial is more than just a river in Egypt. When we're in denial, we tend to isolate ourselves. This is not happening to me. I won't let this happen. The second stage is anger. Where is God in the midst of all of this? How could God allow this to happen to me? Anger is known as a secondary emotion. It always is there protecting a more primary emotion, the pain and the grief that we feel. Then the third stage, after anger comes bargaining. Just let me live long enough to see my son graduate or let me live long enough to be at my daughter's wedding. We can get lost in the bargaining stage with what if and if only about the past. And the companion to bargaining, according to Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, is, is guilt. We often feel guilt about the past and how we may have contributed to the way things are unfolding. Following the third stage of bargaining, we come often to a period of depression about the present. I can't bear to face going through this. I can't bear to put my family through this. We withdraw often from life in this stage of depression. It's a natural and it's an appropriate response. It's one of the necessary steps of grief. And then finally, the fifth stage, we come to acceptance. I'm ready. I don't want to struggle anymore. 
one's never really all right with what has happened, but we come to a point where we accept a new reality. We learn to live with it. We move on. We change. We grow. We evolve. Now John's gospel describes the death of Lazarus and Jesus raising him, but he also includes these family dynamics woven through the story. Martha and Mary, his sisters, are at varying stages of grief, and they respond true to their personalities. Martha, the more assertive one, and Mary, slower to respond, but ultimately the more devoted. The story says, as Becca illustrated this morning, Jesus wept. Weeping is perhaps the most human and universal of all relief efforts, according to Dr. Carl Minninger. Or as Lord Byron once said, sorrows are our best educators. A person can see further through a tear than through a telescope. Even Jesus experienced grief and compassion for those who were grieving. I think in the story, Martha represents all believers in her inadequate understanding of Jesus in the face of death and grief. She and they and all of us, really, are confronted not with some general idea of resurrection sometime in some distant future. But we're confronted with a much deeper and more profound understanding that the one who we know and have come to know in Jesus is actually the one who is the resurrection and the life. I mean, he says it. I am the resurrection and the life. It's the final seventh of the I am statements in John's gospel. It's the turning point in this entire story. He gives his life, which ironically leads to a plot to kill him. He raises Lazarus from the dead, and it begins his own demise. The exchange happens right here in our text. It leads both to a confession of faith for the disciples with a deeper and more profound understanding of who Jesus is, and it leads to a rejection and a plot to take his life. And so this story illustrates what the prologue to John includes. What has come into being in him was life. And the life was the light of all people. We, like Lazarus, receive life from the one who will sacrifice his life on our behalf. Now at some point, every one of us has to come to terms with the question of Jesus to Martha and Mary. Do you believe this? Do you believe I am the resurrection and the life. Can you trust 
that those who believe in me, even though they die, will live? Can you confess with Martha, yes, Lord, I believe you're the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world, the Word made flesh, living among us, full of grace and truth. It's once said that faith is the bird that sees the light and sings when the dawn is still dark. You know, I've been influenced by the writings of Frederick Buechner. Buechner writes about his own transitional understanding of what it means to believe in the face of death. He wrote these words. In the past, when my faith was strong, I always trusted God, more or less. I trusted him with my life, which is to say I trusted him, but the supposition was I would always, in some measure, be alive to say to him the words, O Lord, in thee I have trusted. The change is that now I begin at least to trust him with my death. I begin at least to see that death is not merely a biological necessity, but it's a necessity too in terms of the mystery of salvation. We find by losing. We hold fast by letting go. We become something new by ceasing to be something old. This seems to be close to the heart of that mystery. And then Buechner concludes, I know no more now than I ever did about the far side of death as the last letting go of all. But I begin to know that I do not need to know. And that I do not need to be afraid of not knowing. God knows. That is all that matters. I trust God with my death. In our story, Jesus does not leave Lazarus or Mary or Martha. He's with them to the end, and he's especially with them through it. And the point is, in Christ, we encounter the living God with the power of life over death. Do you believe it? Can you trust God not only with your life, but also with your death? You know, it seems to me we're assured over and over again in our suffering that God is with us. And yet, most of us suspect at one time or another that Martha and Mary are absolutely right in their story. If God were with us, our brother or our mother or our child or our friend would not have died. We would not have gotten cancer. We would not have lost our home. And sometimes it just seems like Jesus is always two days late leaving for Judea. But God has his own timing. And in those seasons of our lives, we have to dare to read to the end of this story. For in the end... 
the end of the Lazarus story is not, in fact, the end of Lazarus. It's a new beginning for him. And the same God who breathes into Ezekiel's dry bones also orders Lazarus out of the tomb and raises Jesus from the dead on Easter morning. And that same God will, in the fullness of time, redeem creation and raise us to new life. Thanks be to God. Amen.